everyone. Welcome to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I'm Kim Yellen, and we're just going to jump right in. I am doing The Disappearance of Amelia Earhart. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, this I, is so exciting. I feel like it's something that like everyone knows about, but like mm-hmm. finding out kind of the details of things, which there aren't actually, like when you really get down to it, there aren't a whole lot of details. There's kind of just a bunch of like theories and stuff. Okay. But it was really interesting to like, read about her that's the thing that I feel like I have to like cut down a whole bunch because she was super interesting like was really a pioneer in in women's aviation and women's kind of feminism from the very beginning um but she was born on July 24th 1897 which I was born on July 23rd so every time I kept like (laughs) reading it out loud I kept saying July 23rd and I'm like no July 24th so she was born on July 24th most of her early childhood was spent with her grandparents who were uh, upper middle class Um, Her mom uh, was named Amy um, and then her dad was Edwin and he everything that I was reading said that he had a lot of potential, but that he just could not. He was he was an alcoholic and he just could Mm. not kind of like break those bonds of alcoholism. Mm. Um, So they kind of got shipped back and forth between uh, living with their parents and then living with their grandparents, uh, her and her sister. Uh, Muriel, which I think is a beautiful name. That is a beautiful name. Right. It's one of those like classic names like. I don't Amelia is kind of the same way that like people aren't really named Amelia anymore. Yeah. But. Well, I don't know. I have a cousin named Amelia and I have a friend who has a daughter named Amelia. Oh, OK. Well. Maybe just <laughs> people I hang out with, I guess, aren't named Amelia anymore. There's actually one of my lifeguards is named Amelia now that I think about it. But <laughs> never mind. Ne- Mir- Muriel, though, is maybe people aren't named Muriel anymore. Her mom had good taste, though. Those are beautiful names. Well, her mom was named Amelia. So I guess okay. that that was kind of the tradition in their family. But she went by Amy. Um, In 1915, they moved to Chicago with friends, Hmm. and uh, she finished up high school in Chicago. She excelled in chemistry. Um, This kind of instilled in her from the beginning, this this kind of desire to, like, take care of yourself, that, like, you don't need need to kind of rely on other people, which I feel like is, I don't know, it's one of those things that's, like, a good thing to learn, but to learn it so young is kind of sad. Yeah, that's true. Um, Her sister moved to, after, after she grew up and graduated from high school, her sister moved to Toronto. And at one point, Amelia visited her sister in Toronto. um, And this is where she first met pilots and she first started talking to pilots and she she grew a strong admiration for them. Hmm. Um, And then she also started to um, study uh, medicine at Columbia University. But she had to. Yeah. But she quit a year later and then says returned to California. It was in California that she kind of took the first steps to being an aviator. So at a Long Beach air show in 1920, she took her first ride in a plane and it was only 10 minutes, but it says that it changed her life. Wow. And how old was she at this point? She's already in her 20s, right? Yeah, it was in 1920 and she was born in 1897. So I guess she was 23. Okay. Yeah, that's right. 23. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so she was in her early 20s, which I feel like is the best time for like the, those early 20s are like the best. I feel yeah. like they're the best time in your life when you're like kind of figuring things out and you're kind of figuring out what you're good at and what you enjoy, especially to like find a passion at that age, because it's at an age where it's like you have the means to actually pursue it in a real way, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. You kind of have that wherewithal like you you kind of are starting to learn what you're good at. And then you're starting to, like you said, like put them towards a passion. And Mm -hmm. um, so she decided at that moment that she wanted to learn to fly. She took up a bunch of different jobs to pay for flying lessons. She put all of her money together. In the summer of uh, 1921, she purchased her first plane that was painted bright yellow and she named it the Canary. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. Um, Also, 
I just, now that when you asked how old she was, 1921, I'm really big about golden years. Have you ever heard about your gold? Do you know what your golden year is? No. So your golden year is when you turn your birthday. So like when I turned 23, like I was born on the 23rd. So when I turned 23 is your golden year. So if she was born on the 24th, I don't know where that came from. I've talked to a ton (laughs) of people about it and I feel like nobody really knows about it. Like, I don't know if maybe it's just something my mom made up. I don't know. Yeah. So that's supposed to be like a significant year for you. And I feel like maybe it's just that my, like in my family, my birthday was the latest. Like everyone else in my family is like, like, I think my sister, my sister's birthdays on the 15th I think that might be the closest one so like I was the only one that was like old enough to appreciate my golden really enjoy birthday. your golden years yes. yeah. I did and I was living in Canada I was kind of doing like I was the first time that I was like on my own and I was like doing my own thing and I yeah like I had moved 3,000 miles away I moved from Corpus Christi Texas to Calgary Alberta Canada like oh I moved, wow yeah like I was I was doing the golden year like it was <laughs> it was happening trying to think what my golden year was I was uh, it would be 27 yeah when I was 27 what was I doing you know I opened my business when oh. I was 27 see it's a so, good yeah. year it's I guess good... it was a good year yeah it was a tough year yeah it was a good one yeah I feel it, it's good to well that's good when it's tough and you like grow and you learn who you are mm-hmm. and you like I feel like mm-hmm. if things are too easy it's not you're not so, learning from easy times like so basically it's all downhill from here no, right right there's no coming <laughs> Just... out well I guess you could have your like double golden year I guess I don't oh. know if that's the thing yeah why not but, sure yeah I'm not even sure a golden year is a thing. So why not a double golden year? It is definitely a thing. Don't, <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't, I'm kidding. Just, don't take away from it. I, I swear I, I didn't make it up. But <laughs> 21 would have been Amelia Earhart's golden year. Okay. So it was a good year all around. So she bought her first plane, the Canary. Um, and then in October of 1922, she flew her plane at 14,000 feet which was a world altitude record for female flyers. Wow. Um, which seems very low, but I guess yeah. that was a big... There's a whole bunch of stuff, like, as we get into, like, the beginning of aviation that I'm like, that seems really low or really long or really, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I guess it's kind of just the beginning of something. Um, and then in 1923, she became the 16th woman to be issued a pilot's license, hmm. which is another thing. How did she set this record <laughs> when she didn't have a... I think you have to... Don't you have to log a number of hours with another pilot? Oh, so maybe she was with somebody else yeah, when she set this record? Before you can get... Because they don't just, like, give you your license if you've right. never been up in the air or touched the controls, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, that's how it works with cars, too. Like, they're not, like, here's... You get, like, a learner's permit. So maybe mm-hmm. there was... There's kind of that equivalent in flying. Would you ever learn to fly, or does it scare you? No, I would... I, I think that sounds like so much fun. I, I think that would be really really cool like yeah I I I'm I'm as we're like doing this podcast I figured out I'm a big scaredy cat I feel like everything I'm like (laughs) no no I wouldn't do that that sounds too scary but I feel like flying would be really really cool like really freeing and I bet I bet you could learn how I there's probably like a hangar somewhere around you yeah I'm sure there is I just feel like it's one of these things that's like a really expensive hobby I don't know. My brother did it. and Really? Yeah. And I don't think it was that expensive. I think they do like, because, you know, I mean, I think that like maybe to like maintain your license and to own a plane or something like that. But I think they have like courses for like even like kids, like learn how to fly courses that, I mean, I'm sure it costs, I'm sure it's not super, super cheap, but I don't know. Yeah. I guess you you don't have to own the plane. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. I should look into it. I bet that would be fun. I do. I'll do it for my my double golden year, my diamond yes. year. We'll we'll figure diamond that out. Diamond year. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's I what it that. is. I'm I'm a ways away from that still, but um. She, well, she went to California to meet up with her mother, and then they decided to just drive across the country. I don't just decided to have a girls trip and drive across the country. So they ended up back in Boston. Hmm. Um, she again started to take on kind of odd jobs to support flying. She became a member of the Boston chapter of the American Aeronautical Society. Um, she invested some money in the airport. She also, th- this is kind of her first dabble into celebrity. She started writing some articles about aviation and female aviation. And she she developed hmm. a bit of a celebrity from that. And people started to kind of know her name. And I feel like that's why there's, kind of a lot written about her now is that even then people are like, who is this girl? And we want to find out about her. And there's a lot of pictures of her when in like an age when. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very romantic idea, like this lone woman aviator flying across the country and her yellow, you know, airplane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they latched onto that pretty quick and she, she earned a bit of a, a bit of a name in 1928. This Captain Hilton Riley um, was a publicity man and a pilot, and he called up Amelia Earhart and he said, would you like to fly across the Atlantic? And it says in a heartbeat, she said yes. Mm. However, everyone knows that, right? That she's like the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Yeah. She she was just a passenger. Oh, really? Yeah. Like there were two other people, other men that were flying the plane. But she was the first female passenger to fly, which seems so oh. strange that like women hadn't even been on a plane yeah. across the Atlantic. But that still seems kind of scary because I don't think that that many people had gone that far yet. So it must have still been like a really brave thing to do. Right, right. But I I, I guess I always pictured her in this like really active role in that, but she wasn't. Yeah. It, was, it yeah. was just as a passenger. And it says wisdom at the time was such that a flight was too dangerous for a woman to conduct herself. Oh. So like they thought it was too dangerous for her to sit there for a couple hours. I don't I don't know what the mm. deal was. I don't like these people. Right. It just <laughs> seems very very limited. Like could you imagine living in a time like that where somebody was like, "No, it's too dangerous for you to sit here." Like oh you my can't. Gosh. Like you're yeah. so delicate and what anytime I hear about like um uh, the Olympics and stuff when they talk about not like or the or like the New York Marathon and the Boston like these older marathons that like women weren't allowed to compete yeah because it was it was thought to be like too much on their you know these delicate bodies uh, so um, weird time yes um, so in June of tw- of 1928 she took off from Newfoundland in this plane called Friendship and it took approximately 20 hours and 40 minutes to fly from Newfoundland to Wales wow which seems insane. I can't believe 20 hours, 20 hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. So anyway, so they went uh, they went to Wales and they were met with great fanfare. But Amelia later confirmed that she felt, quote, just like baggage, like a sack of potatoes. And she added, Some, maybe someday I'll try it alone. Um, so the friendship crew returned to the United States. They had a ticker tape parade in New York, which Ooh. just sounds amazing. Every time <laughs> I look at those old pictures of ticker tape parades, I'm like, yes. Oh. You know, they still do that. On um on New Year's, so like I think with of, confetti um, and stuff, mm-hmm. it <gasps> must have been almost like I, I think it must have been almost like ten years ago. Nah, maybe like eight or nine years. Anyway, a, a while, a long time ago, almost a decade ago. Uh, I was um for New Year's, we actually went to this party in an office building above Times Square, and when the yeah when it when it struck midnight, 
we dumped confetti on all the people below out the wow. window and like oh. all the office buildings around like dumped all this confetti out and that's where all the confetti comes from when you see it on the live broadcast it's from people in all these office buildings just like dumping it over um who, who brought the confetti where like it wasn't like the city gave you the confetti maybe like, they might have yeah i i mean or maybe maybe just everybody agreed that they'd get their right. own confetti but it, i think all the confetti kind of looks the same so maybe it is like standard issue confetti <laughs> they're like come get your box of confetti yeah are you having an yeah. office party at times square come come get your confetti yeah yeah maybe they probably just like delivered it there and we're like throw this out because i'm sure any of the businesses and anybody who has an office around that area is gonna throw a party on right New Year's. right yeah I feel like the only way to do it would be in an office building. I wouldn't want, I had a friend that was like on the ground. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And, and she was like, it was all, she's like, I did it once. I'm never doing it again. Like, no. Yeah. She, she was, it sounds pretty rough. And I think she went on one of the, one of the years when it wasn't super cold either. Cause I, I think there are years when it's, it's super cold. Yeah. It's which really would make it bad. even more, but. And you know, they like corral you in these mm -hmm. little like, Fence corrals in, yeah corrals <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can't leave and it's just I mean right and yeah people wait there all day it's awful so yeah in 1928 she wrote a book so she gained she started to kind of build her celebrity it says that she contributed to a line of fashion um she had all these celebrity oh. endorsements she was really in the public eye she became an associate editor at Cosmopolitan magazine so so she was really a big uh proponent of commercial travel and a female aviation and trying to kind of get that out there. And, and the media used her to advertise these things. Um, she also became a promoter of uh, transcontinental air transport, which later became the TWA, okay. um, which did not meet with great ends, if I remember correctly. But but that was years later. So I guess that's OK. Um, on May 20th, um, 1932, she became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. So this was when she was actually a pilot. She was by herself. Uh, it took her uh, 15 hours to go from Newfoundland to Ireland. Get it. So again, quite a long time. But considering, I mean, it's like four years later and they cut off five hours. That's, that's pretty amazing. Significant. Yeah. Before that flight, she had met this George Putman. He was married when they first met and she had moved into his house with his wife. And then they kind of struck up a love affair, which their daughter claims that that the love affair started after things started to go bad. Like it wasn't a cause of it, but she still started this like relationship with this publisher and with this married man. Scandal. It's very scandalous. So he got a divorce in uh, 1929 and then immediately proposed to Earhart. He proposed six times before she finally agreed to marry him. Um, after substantial hesitation on her part, they were married on February 7th, 1931. So before this transatlantic flight, um, she referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual control. And in, in this letter, this is the best part. I love this, this girl. <laughs> yes. In this letter that she wrote him, uh, that was delivered to him the day of their wedding, she wrote, quote, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Um, I may have to keep some place where I go, where I can go by myself, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. So she, <laughs> she see, you know, it's kind of one of one of those marriages. Oh, they had I, an understanding. So wow, yeah. So she she knew what was up. She knew what she wanted. Look, she was upfront about it, you know, and that's all you can really ask of somebody, right? Right? You know, yeah. Like, 
I think it's fine as long as you're upfront about it. You know? Right. Yeah. Which is I feel like to be like a woman in the 20s and be able to be upfront about it is oh, really cool. Wild. Like, yeah, like <laughs> to, to be like, this is how I want my marriage to go. If you don't want it, walk away. Like I'm giving you the option now, but this is how I see marriage. Yeah. And they also talked later on about how she she did not like um, the New York Times had, I guess, a rule that she was supposed to go by Miss Miss Putnam now. And she didn't want that. She told them that that they couldn't call her that, that she kept her last name, that she was like she was Amelia Earhart throughout her whole life. Hmm. Um, so and it was it even joked that um, George Putman would joke to people that he was actually Mr. Earhart that like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then after she got married, she did this transatlantic flight. She was the first woman to um, to cross the Atlantic on her own. So later on that year, she decided to recreate Charles Lindbergh's flight, um, which was from New York to Paris. So after she took off, she immediately met with some difficulties. There were some problems with the navigation equipment. There was a problem with ice on the wings. Um, and it kind of only got worse. So she knew that she wasn't going to be able to make it to Paris. So she ended up just landing in a field in Ireland. But she was met with, when she did make an appearance in London, she was met with fanfare. Everybody was really excited to see her. Um, when she made it back to the United States, she was honored with a gold medal from the National Geographic Society. President Hoover gave her the Distinguished Flying Cross from the U.S. Congress. She was given the Cross of the Knights of the Legion of Honor from the French government. So she she was really honored. That kind of brought up her name, and she was really honored um, by a bunch of different governments. Hmm. L- later that year and kind of in the subsequent years, she did a whole bunch of other flights that were kind of the first the first time for a bunch of things. She did a solo flight from Honolulu to Oakland, which established her as the first person, not the first woman, the first person, to fly both across the Atlantic and the Pacific. Wow. Which I was kind of wondering, because Honolulu to Oakland is not all the way across the Pacific. So I guess it just means flying over the Pacific Ocean. That's a long flight, though. Yeah, I bet. I, even now, that's a long flight. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's... Not, that is that longer than New York to London? It's at least equivalent. Like, I've only it, done... New York to Honolulu, and I've done that twice. And I'll, Ugh, how long was that? It's like twelve hours. Yuck! That sounds awful. And the last time I went, I got stuck on the runway before we even left for like an additional like two and a half hours. Uh, yeah, it was a bad flight. Yeah, that sounds really <laughs> bad. I've gone from um, I'm trying to think of my like longest flights. I've gone from Dallas to Tokyo. That was really long. Yeah. I think that was twelve. I want to say that was twelve or thirteen hours. I think it's almost fourteen. Yeah, I, when I did. New York to Tokyo, I think it was 14. Yeah. And then I went, um, Toronto to Tel Aviv was a really long flight too. Those were probably my longest. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, she was the first person to fly across uh, both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And the Pacific. Uh, she flew solo from LA to uh, Mexico City. A month later, she flew from Mexico City to New York. Um, between um, 1930 and 1935, she set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of aircrafts. Um, she joined the faculty at Purdue as a consultant in their Department of Aeronautics, and she began to contemplate one last flight around the world. Um, she okay. started her flight on July 2nd, 1937. Um, she had three men with her. There was um, Captain Henry Manning, who was a captain for President Roosevelt. There was Fred Noonan, who was a respected aviator in both marine and flight navigation. And then there was this guy named Paul Manitz, who was a stunt pilot, a Hollywood stunt pilot. Okay. That was his, that was why he was there. He was there for comedic relief. Sure. Yeah. To tell you all the Hollywood <laughs> stories. So 
that that was her crew. So they originally started in Oakland and they went west to Hawaii. But on the very first leg from Oakland to Hawaii, they started to have problems. So when they were taking off from Hawaii, someone lost control of the plane. And there, there's speculation about if it was a tire blue or if it was pilot error. But something happened and the plane kind of looped around on the runway and crashed. And so no one was hurt, but there was substantial damage to to the plane. Mm-hmm. And so in that meantime, the first pilot, what was his name? Sorry. Um, Manning, Henry Manning um, had ob- other obligations. So Henry Manning couldn't go anymore. And then this Paul Moretz didn't want to continue either. And it says because of a possible contract dispute. So for some reason, he decided not to go on. So it was just Amelia Earhart and Paul Noonan. They went back to Oakland and then they ended up, instead of leaving from Oakland this time, they left from Florida. So they started in Florida. They left with much fanfare. The last kind of confirmed landing that they had was in the city called Leal in New Guinea. They had completed 22,000 miles of their journey, and there was only 7,000 left. But the 7,000 was across the Pacific Ocean, which is kind of, I mean, obviously this big expanse of just nothingness. Yeah, nowhere to land if you have a problem. Right. Uh, Amelia Hart contracted dysentery, and so they ended up staying there for a a little longer, and they did some adjustments to the plane. They also took out the parachutes, I guess, when you're over the Pacific Ocean, if your plane starts to go down, there's nowhere to parachute. So what's the point of keeping your parachute on the plane? Wow, that's morbid. Right, yeah. And they also added a bunch more fuel to it. So they packed this plane full of fuel. Um, and then on July 2nd, 1937, at 12.30 a.m., which again sounds weird to me, but um, maybe there was a reason that they did that, um, they took off and were headed towards this island called Howland Island. This is where kind of speculation kind of takes over and nobody quite knows what happened. So there was a ship that was stationed at um, Howland Island, a U.S. Navy ship, and they were in communications with this ship and they were trying to kind of to navigate towards the ship. Um, It was said that the maps they had might have been old, but they did have maps. The last communication that they have was at 7.20 a.m. And it says, we must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We're flying at 1,000 feet. And the ship tried to reply, but the radio that the plane had was old technology. So the ship could hear them, but couldn't really radio back to them, which is... Oh, no. Yeah, which is kind of... You would think they would have figured that out beforehand, but I, I guess... I guess they just didn't know. They started an immediate search when the plane didn't come in. There was an effort of 66 aircrafts and nine ships. An estimated $4 million was authorized by President Roosevelt. Mm. Um, But the fate of the two planes remained a mystery. Putman, Earhart's husband, put in additional search efforts. Um, He even contacted psychics to try to find his wife. On January 5th, 1939, Earhart was declared legally dead by the Superior Court in Los Angeles. That's kind of all that is known. Um, there's there's a couple different speculations about what could have happened and, and how these things could have happened. Um, the one that makes the most sense, I think, is what they call the crash and sink theory. And it's just that they crashed in the ocean, that the ship is lost in, somewhere in between... New Guinea and these Howland Islands. The Howland Islands were kind of the stopping point between there and Honolulu. So they might be lost. Like it might be lost somewhere in between there. But again, the the Pacific Ocean is kind of big. Kind of big. (laughs) Yeah, just just a little big. Just a little big. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's half the world or something like that. It's, It's a lot of water and a lot of places. So they just have never been able to find any proof of this crash. Um, apparently the guy who found 
the Titanic was like on the search too. Like he was trying to find this plane, any proof of this plane, Aww. and he couldn't find any, which I feel like if, but I mean, the Titanic was bigger than this plane too. And I feel like they even had, they had, I mean, a rough estimate of where the Titanic was too. Like yeah. to just be like, search the whole Pacific. She might be somewhere out here. Yeah. Is, yeah. is a bit of a bigger. Exercise in futility. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of the more accepted theory is that this plane just crashed. This is the one that's accepted by most of her family. It's also accepted by um, uh, the Center for the National Air and Space Museum. This is, this is kind of what they're going on. Um, there's another hypothesis that involves this island called the Gardner Island, which is another island. The Howland Island and the Gardner Islands were kind of close to each other. They're both really, really small islands. But there is suspicion that maybe they made it to that island. And they have, in like subsequent searches, kind of contemporary searches of this island, they found part of something that could be part of the the front of the plane that they mm-hmm. said matches the curvature and the size of, of the front window of the plane. There also is this weird evidence in this other article I found from, I think it's from USA Today. Six days after the accident, there was a signal that somebody picked up in in Texas. And apparently she claims that they picked up a signal that says plane down on an uncharted island, small and uninhabited. Um, then there was 12 hours of silence. After that, there was one more signal. On uh, July 4th, a San Antonio res- resident picked up a chilling uh, frequency believed to be Earhart, quote, still alive, but better hurry. Tell husband all right. Um, and then five days after the crash on July 7th, there was a, a Selma Lovelace in St. John's, New Brunswick, that said, can you hear me? Can you hear me? This is Amelia Earhart. Please come in. We have taken in water. My navigator is badly hurt. We are in need of medical care and must have help. We cannot hold on much longer. And then silence forever. And so these radio transmissions, they're just like from random people all right. across. Like, and we can't prove that they ever even actually came through or if people just made it up. Right. Yeah, that's, okay. that's the thing is that you can't kind of confirm. I mean, if I walked up to you and I said, yeah, I definitely heard this radio transmission that said it was Amelia Earhart. I mean, how can you kind of confirm that? Like, it's kind of lost. There, there aren't yeah. recordings yeah. of it or anything like that. So... Um, those are, are supposedly proof that she had survived and they believe that she crashed on these Gardner Islands. Um, there was also contemporary searches that they found um, in the 1940s. Uh, a skull was discovered by some some British people that were looking as well as a sextant box, which a sextant is that I think it's that thing you look at the stars with, right? Like you can use it to navigate with the stars. Could they test it for DNA, the skull? They can't test it for DNA, but they like measured it okay. using their technology, the like 1940s technology. They measured it. And the the guy that found it was convinced it came from a woman. He was convinced that it was Amelia Earhart. And then they were sent to Fiji for more testing. But the guy who tested them in Fiji was like, no, these are this is a man's skeleton. Mm. And now it just says the bones were misplaced in Fiji long ago and cannot be reexamined. Oh, so, no. Yeah. So nobody knows where all of this stuff is. But apparently there were bones found. The, then kind of the last theory that that isn't kind of crazy is that the Japanese captured them. So whether they landed in the in the ocean or they landed on this island, there's a suspicion that they might have been captured by the Japanese. And there's actually this like crazy picture. Like it's an old picture and it's from far away, but there's it's like of a dock with a bunch of boats in the background. And there's a bunch of people standing at the end of the dock, like not posing for the picture, but they're, mm-hmm. they're just kind of happen to be at the end mm-hmm. of the dock. And people look at this picture and are like, this is 
obviously Amelia Earhart and George Noonan. Somebody said that they like used uh, like modern computer technology to analyze this picture. Um, it just says it shows a Caucasian male at, on the dock that appears to look like Noonan, a woman standing on the dock facing away from the camera and judging to have the physique and haircut of Earhart. That's a long shot. <laughs> I, I agree. I think sometimes you're, you kind of see what you want to see. There's also speculation in this picture that one of the ships looks like it's towing something that might be the remains of the plane. Hmm. Um, there's another report that maybe she went to this place called New Britain, um, which is now uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, and kind of lived out her life. Kind of one of the one of the cooler theories. Well, not cooler. One of the fu- maybe funnier theories is that she assumed another identity. Um, there was apparently this woman named Irene Craigmile Ballum, and she was <laughs> was found in New Jersey. And I don't know, like the like how this little like paragraph is written. It sounds like somebody just walked up to her and was like, "You look like Amelia Earhart." And then she like spent the rest of her life being like, "No, I'm not." Like, I'm, I'm not <laughs> Amelia Earhart. Like, stop, stop saying this. And also, like, like, if you were going to assume an identity, I don't know that you would choose that name. Right, <laughs> like, right. I think you'd pick something else. Right, something. It's a little too specific. Right, right, yeah. She ended up suing somebody, requesting $1.5 million in damages, saying that she was definitely not this person. Um, I guess there was a book written that was saying that she was just, it seems so weird that somebody could like walk up to you and be like, you're definitely this missing person. And you're like, no, dude, I'm not. And then they can just like continue to like write a book. <laughs> but she spent her whole life being like, no, I'm I'm not Amelia Earhart. Like, please stop. Please leave me alone. Like That is funny. Yeah. I mean, um, it wasn't funny to her, but it's no, funny now. <laughs> no, just a, a professional, just to like put a lid on that. A professional criminal forensics expert hired by National Geographic studied pictures of both women and cited many measurable facial differences between Earhart and Balaam. Mm-hmm. There's also the the aliens and, you know, all the other theories that that are out there, too. But those are kind of the major theories I just really quickly wanted to close with the records that she set, which I think are really cool. She set a women's altitude record of 14,000 feet in 1922. She was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean in 1928. She had a speed record in 1931. Uh, She was the first woman to fly an auto gyro, which I think is a kind of plane. Uh, She had set an altitude record in that plane. She was the first person across the United States in that plane. She was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic solo. She was the first person to fly across the Atlantic twice. Uh, She was the first woman to to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross. She was the first woman to fly nonstop coast to coast across the U.S. Uh, She set a woman's speed transcontinental record. She was the first person to fly solo between Honolulu and Oakland. She was the first person to fly solo between Los Angeles and Mexico City. The first person flying nonstop from Mexico City to Newark, New Jersey. Um, she set a speed record east to west from Oakland to Honolulu. And then she was the first person to fly solo from the Red Sea to Karachi, which I think is pretty cool. That like, Yeah, she did a lot. She did a whole lot in, in like she was declared dead. When she was declared dead, she would have been 39. Oh. So in like a really That's, short amount of time. Yeah. She did a whole lot. So. That's kind of the very abridged version of Amelia Earhart. Like I said, her life is so interesting. And I I had to kind of breeze through it as quickly as I could because we're already getting super long. But um, she was one hell of a woman, wasn't she? Yeah. So look it up. Read about it. You won't be disappointed. Spend some. There's a whole bunch of books written about her. She wrote books. Check it all out. And that's that's the story of Amelia Earhart. 
That was awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for all that research and just, I mean. Sorry, it got a bit, got a bit what long. A, but what a, what a legacy. That's right. awesome. Right. I feel like people, all people know about her is that she disappeared flying across the Atlantic. But like there's so much, or the Pacific, I guess. Yeah. But there's so much more to her. Like I was like, oh, I have to, I have to get all this out. So yeah, yeah. Please, please check out some other things and, and look up what all she's done. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, okay, so I'll, um, I'll get into mine now. So I'm going to tell you the story of the very first financial bubble oh. and how it was caused by what might be the most innocuous item that you can think of. <laughs> oh. um, it was caused by tulips, by flowers. Really? So this, yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm here for it. Like, you know, when you like you give someone like the beginning and the end of a story and you're like, yeah. this is all going to connect. Oh, I'm so interested. This is all going to connect. Yeah. This is a story of tulip mania of the uh, 1600s. So uh, today you can buy several tulips for like a few dollars. But in 1637, you could buy several houses for a couple tulips. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Tulips originally came from Persia, and they came to Western Europe through trade with the Ottoman Empire. And the tulip was a, a very different kind of flower than anybody had ever seen before. It was very vibrant. So they became this luxury item that a lot of the wealthier people wanted to acquire. As a result, all these different varieties started getting grown, and some of the varieties were more expensive than others, and, and I'll get into that a, a little bit more in just a bit. But the Dutch Empire was the center of this tulip trade. Yeah, that's I, I associate tulips with the Dutch. When you said they were yeah. from Persia, I was like, oh, that's that's not where I thought. Yeah, so that's really where the, the tulip trade kind of exploded, was in Amsterdam and, and um, the Netherlands. Um at the time when all this happened, the Dutch Republic was still a fairly new country. It had only broken from Spain about 50 years prior. And the 1630s were known as kind of like the Dutch Golden Age. People considered it the birthplace of capitalism. And a, a large middle class had developed there. And Amsterdam was where the first company was founded, which was the Dutch East India Company. And we... Oh, cool. Yeah, we could actually do like a whole other story on the Dutch East India Company, but I, I'll, I'll leave that for another yeah. day. Yeah, I've heard like with like Columbus and stuff. That's what mm -hmm. you always hear about is, is the Dutch India Company. Yeah, it's it's a crazy story. Yeah. And Amsterdam was where the first stock exchange was established as well. So this is kind of like where capitalism began. Wow. I had no idea that that was. Yeah. I don't know where I would have thought capitalism would have started, but it wouldn't have been the 16, Netherlands. 1630s. Yeah. Crazy. So you've got this like growing economy around all of this trade and all these people who now have all this expendable cash and they want to get their hands on these luxury items like these tulips. The growers see this demand and they start bringing as many varieties of these tulips in as they can. And th it's funny because they would name these tulips all these really over the top names like Admiral and General and then like Admiral of Admirals or like Vickery. And there's one that was named like Jumerskoon. You got to have good marketing. You got to have a, yeah. you got to have a thing. And it kind of, it reminds me of like, you know, the way they name like the different strains of weed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of like, nail you know? polish, but I guess, oh. I guess weed applies to Well, funny. I was thinking like uh, plants, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The last time I went to Colorado, uh, we went to a pot store because, you know, when in Rome. That's what you, you do. Right. Yeah. Yes. You want to go check yeah. it out. 
And the names were so funny. It was like Super Silver Volcano Haze, you know, like yeah. all these just like really over the top names. That's, I'm trying to when I went to I have a box that's sitting on my shelf right now and I wish I could read it. But I think it's I think it's Willie's Reserve is the name of the brand like like Willie yeah. Nelson. And then I, oh, think wow. it, I think it's called White Walker. I think White it's Walker. what the name of that. Oh, uh, like after was. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I think. Yeah. You got a market. Yeah, they they really do. They go over the top of yes, those names yeah. now. <laughs> anyway, so there were a lot of different varieties that were coming up. And many of them today have since died out. So like these tulips don't even exist anymore. Hmm. At the time, there were different like kinds of tulips. There were the single-hued tulips. There were multicolored tulips. And there was the rarest of all being these tulips that they called bizardins. And they had these intricate flame-like streaks through the petals. Ooh. And these bulbs, they were actually infected with a tulip-specific virus called the mosaic virus or the tulip-breaking virus because it would break the color of one petal into two. So it was... It was a virus, but it did like a beautiful thing. Yeah, it changed the color of the uh, of the petals. Hmm. But back then, they didn't know that it was a virus that did this. Oh. And because of that, they had no way of testing the bulbs. So it's just a surprise. You like it was just like a, yeah. It was and that caused a lot of problems. <laughs> oh. Okay. So investing in these bulbs was really risky mm -hmm. at the get-go because the type of flower it produced would significantly affect the amount of money you could get for it once it flowered and you were able to actually sell it. And of course, as in every industry, there were really unscrupulous businessmen who would sell these bulbs and claim that they were this expensive strain of tulip, and then they actually weren't. Um, oh. So there was one varietal that was developed that became the most sought after, and it was called the Semper Augustus tulip. <laughs> okay. And it was owned by a man named Adrian Pau. And this guy knew that if he sold his flower, anyone could use its offspring to grow more. Right. And in turn, it would saturate the market and it would drive the price of the Semper Augustus down. So instead, he created a monopoly around this flower. He made a contract with all of his buyers that barred them from growing anymore. Essentially, mm. he was like, if you buy this flower from me, you cannot sell this flower to anyone else without my expressed consent. And you also can't use this flower's offspring to grow more. And while a lot of people like just ignored the contract, right. um, a lot of people didn't. And because most people like honored the contract they had with him between 1623 and 1625, the price of this Semper Augustus flower rose from a thousand guildas to 3000 guildas. Wow. Which is the equivalent to around $330,000 in today's money. Whoa, for a flower. For a flower. Like a bulb. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah, super crazy. Another issue was that the tulip bulbs themselves could sometimes take years before they actually produced a flower. Mm. So if a grower were to buy a bulb, it could be a really long time before he actually saw what, what the flower looked like. Right. Um, and because of this, like a new type of contract was developed. And this was called a futures contract. And futures today are traded on commodities like grain and oil and livestock. It's basically a contract. And I won't get all into the logistics of like the different financial instruments that are in today's stock market and how they are derived from basically what, what happened here. I've but, heard that before, though, futures. I feel like I've heard it on um, Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. They talk about that. Yeah, it's basically just a contract that guarantees a price for a future purchase. Mm -hmm. 
um, these are they're seen as pretty risky investments because the market can fluctuate greatly. And if, anyway, it, it's complicated. And I, I I didn't understand it all. I tried to have my husband explain it all to me, and <laughs> I just like my eyes started to glaze over because I, I don't care about the stock market. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But yeah. So anyway, so futures contracts on these bulbs were created for the unbloomed tulips. They're basically just slips of paper saying like, I will buy this bulb from you for this price in such and such time. And then those slips were traded between the buyers as well, driving up the prices further. Oh, wow. So these like Hmm. slips of paper that just were these futures contracts were like being traded back and forth between people. When you first started talking, it sounded like like dog breeder contracts, like kind of how you have those. Oh, like you have to have a contract with the breeder. If I took a dog and then I wanted to breed that dog, I think you have to have a contract between the original breeder or like you Mm. have to spay them or whatever. But then it went off into... Like at first I was like, oh yeah, I got it. It's like dog contracts, but now it's no, yeah, that that's not yeah. quite, <laughs> not quite what what it is anymore. Yeah, well, I think that that is that's that's kind of what the guy did with the Simper Augustus, mm-hmm. and then the futures contract. They're a little different. They're like you're agreeing to buy these bulbs from this merchant at a certain price right. later on. For, yeah, different, like multiple transactions. Yeah, and you're assuming that if you say, okay, the price of this bulb is going to be this much, the price of that bulb will go up over time, and then you can sell that futures contract for a higher price. Yeah. Or the bulb itself for a higher price. Right. So the trading of these futures contracts allowed the tulip trade to thrive outside of the blooming seasons. Mm. And as prices soared, more and more people wanted to get into the tulip trade, saturating the market even further. People who knew very little about tulips started to just buy these contracts and they planned to just sell the contracts themselves for a profit without ever even owning a tulip. Oh, This obviously wasn't sustainable. People were buying futures contracts on large amounts of bulbs while being told that the prices of tulips was only going to go up. By 1636, the tulip bulb became the fourth leading export product in the Netherlands after gin, herrings, and cheese. Wow. (laughs) They were selling a lot of this stuff. Yeah, obviously. The price of tulips skyrocketed because of the speculation in tulip futures among people who, like I said, never even saw the bulbs, never even planned on owning the tulip itself. In the last months of the year of 1636, individual bulbs were bought and sold dozens of times, even within like a day. Wow. But the actual value of the product was much lower than the value for which it was traded, and that created a bubble. And this was a first bubble, so no one really knew it was going to happen. Right, yeah. Like, you're the first time dipping into the stocks or that type of trading. I imagine they were... Yeah, yeah. Everyone was like, this can only go up. Like, this can only get better. Like, And, I mean, it, it just happened over and over again, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, as soon as the prices started to flounder, and this can actually be traced back to just one evening of trading in February of 1637, when in the city of Harlem, the trading prices dropped 95% in one night. Wow. So these merchants would get together at these inns all throughout the Netherlands, and they would bid on different bulbs and different futures contracts. And it was just in one night at one particular inn that for some reason the price just started to plummet. Wow. Isn't there was a day, was it in, I don't know, one of the stock market busts, maybe the one in the 20s that was called, was it, it was like Black Friday or Bloody Something Sunday. Like or there was, I feel like I'm saying 18 other, all these yeah. other days, but there was some day that has a name uh-huh. that was yeah. like the day that stock market suddenly dropped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this was similar to that. Yeah. 
It's also important to note that at this exact time, Harlem was experiencing an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Oh, no. Yeah. And so this may have contributed to the tulip panic. Yeah. People heard about what had happened during the trading session in Harlem and everyone got worried. Uh, As you can guess, they tried to dump their tulip futures and bulbs Mm -hmm. for fear that it would go down further. And like I said, we've all heard this before. Uh, Within four days, the bubble had burst across the Dutch Republic. Wow. And that was followed by a significant economic depression. Thousands of people lost massive amounts of money after having bet their homes and their life savings on these tulips. The government tried to step in and stop the collapse, offering to pay 10% of the contract values, but it it didn't help that much. And the Dutch economy was destroyed for a while because of tulips. Wow. I guess when when your economy is so tied to one product, when it like suddenly busts, like... Yeah. That's crazy. That all because of flowers. It was mostly because like people just thought of them as like this like really expensive luxury item, but it didn't right. actually serve any purpose. Right, right. Like a lot of the futures contracts that people trade on today are things that are actually useful, like oil, like things that like people need, need to survive. Anyway, um, So the Dutch people were told the tulips were good investments all up until it crashed. And that's kind of like what causes a bubble is this idea of trust. Like people trusted before 2008 that these subprime mortgage investments were a good idea. Like all these rating companies were telling everybody, oh, yeah, it's it's a great idea. Right. Turned out that it wasn't. Wow. Yeah. And like, if you think about in 2017, do you remember the Bitcoin? Yes. Yeah. When everybody was buying Bitcoin and like it got like really big. And I mean, I I hate to admit it, but I bought some Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't work out. It didn't work out. I lost some money. I mean, not a lot. I didn't buy a lot. Like it was, you know, I feel like if you like, if you like played your cards right with that, you could have made a lot of money. But I think it was so like you were talking about, like, it's all like trust that like nobody really knew who to trust or there wasn't any trust in it. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of went. And I think a lot more people lost money than obviously (laughs) made money. And Bitcoin, I mean, people are still buying Bitcoin today. There was something, there was a post on Reddit one time. There's there's this subreddit called Ask Reddit. And it's like people, I it's really interesting. Like people kind of ask these open-ended questions. And one of them was like, if you could go, if you could like have a minute phone conversation with you 20 years ago, what would you tell yourself? And mm-hmm. somebody was like, invest in bet- in Bitcoin and don't take it out. Like, don't take it out when the market gets bad. And then somebody else, like, gave this really specific, like, put in this much at this time and then take it out at this time and then put in more at this time. And and they were like, you could have made, you know, like $50 million off of $1,000 if wow. you like, had. But that's how stocks work. Like, if you know yeah. the future, then, then you're going to. But most people don't. So... And I mean, I kind of feel like us plebeians don't have the inside information. Right. You right. know what I mean? Like, someone knows. You yeah. Know? Like, I know that's illegal, but I mean, someone has more of a, a pulse on the market than I do. Totally. And and they're I mean, they're obviously going to make money and I'm not. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, like I said at the time, like they had no idea what was going to happen. Right. But right. It just, it's just funny because it's like, it's a flower. Right. Like you can right. grow more of them. Like, why would you think? Right. I don't know. I, don't I guess know. we think of, I mean, like now they're just, I mean, you can buy a, a bag of flower seeds for, I think they're like five cents. I mean, they're not tulips, but like. Yeah. Well, if from tulip seeds, it takes, I think, something like seven years before you can get a tulip. So that's why people buy bulbs. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Cool. 
Anyway, so that was the story of tulip mania. There was so much in there that I didn't like I had no idea about the Dutch like influence over capitalism and Yeah, and it's interesting to think like people like they had just started to develop this like capitalistic society and like a lot of people were bringing themselves out of poverty at that time in Mm -hmm. the Netherlands. And not everybody was investing in tulips, you know, also like there was just so much trade happening. Um, Well, thanks so much. That was really cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, you want to do our rundown? Sure. Yep. Do do you want me to go first? Sure. Um, So my... My run is kind of not a run. I went on Sunday. I went yesterday. And so I started kind of on my track that I have that's the way that I normally do it. It's a 10K, but I can kind of extend it further if I wanted to. Like there's kind of different branches that I can go on. Um, And so I started on it and I started just walking first. And then I started running and I probably ran for like 100 yards. And I was like, I just don't feel like it. Like it just is not. I don't know. There's just there was just something that I was like, I don't want to run right now. And so I ended up just walking the whole like 10K. It took me forever. It took me like two hours. But I loved it so much. Like it Uh was it was so enjoyable. Like I yeah, like I feel like there's times that you just don't feel like it, but you can still like get out there and do stuff and move around. And and it's Texas. So you sweat just walking outside. So like you sweat. (laughs) I don't know why if it was like the weather or if it was I don't know if it was me or if it was like, I, you know, and I didn't go into it too. Like I didn't try to like analyze it too much, but I yeah. was just like, I just don't, I don't feel like doing this. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a walk, you know? Right. I guess. Okay. I like that. I was really happy and yeah, it was really nice just kind of walking around. I listened, listened to a book on tape. I listened to some podcasts, like, which is something that I tend, like when I'm running, I tend to listen to music, mm-hmm. but I can't listen to like people talking when I'm running. I feel like I miss parts. Yeah, me either. Like it was just a nice a nice walk. So awesome. My run that wasn't a run. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, I'll take it. Yeah. I, um, I guess mine, you know, I'm going to, mine was not a run either. Okay. <laughs> we're going, we're going rogue today. We're theming it. It was really cold here the last couple of days. So I couldn't really go outside. And I have a, I have a Peloton. Mm hmm. And that I use when it's like cold or raining or something like that. And I don't like it as much as running um, because I like like the fresh air and everything. But um, I did a 45 minute Peloton class and um, I usually keep them shorter because I feel like, I don't know, I just I don't feel as inspired when I'm doing it. But the instructor this time was really good. And it felt I felt like I got a great workout in and I didn't even have to leave my house. So, yeah, cool. I'm going to go with that. Cool. Okay, well, uh, check us out online at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. And our Instagram is at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales. And our email is info at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. And our Patreon is, I, 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 I'm going to have you say it because I'm not sure. It's uh, patreon.com slash uh, F-O- at P- See, I mess it up too. P- <laughs> One day we'll get it right. <laughs> right. P-S-A-F-O-T. So just like the first letters of everything. P-S-A-F-O-T. And I think we even have some merch up there now. So yeah, there's some some incentives. So yeah. check it out for sure. All so, right, guys. Rate, listen, and subscribe. Please do. Thanks so much for All listening, right. guys. Bye. Oh, and uh, just so you know, it's far better to be peculiar than boring. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo.